Welcome to the Federation of Asian Canadian Lawyers, Bacal British Columbia podcast. We are a diverse coalition of Asian Canadian legal professionals. We promote equity, justice, and opportunity for Asian Canadian legal professionals and the community. We foster advocacy, community involvement, legal scholarship, and professional development. The purpose of this podcast highlights the diverse and unique members of our community. We hope you enjoy our podcast. Hello and welcome to Faculty BC's podcast. I'm Fiona. And I'm Joni. And we are your co-hosts for today's episode. Our guest today is Raji Mangat, our closing keynote speaker at our 2020 Faculty Gala Conference. Raji is the Executive Director at West Coast Sleep. West Coast Leaf is a nonprofit organization in BC which seeks to end gender discrimination through equality, rights, litigation, law reform, and public legal education. Raji has a wide-ranging legal career with a commitment to using the law as a tool for positive transformation. Her recent work has focused on access to justice, detention on women, and family law. Raji holds a law degree from the University of Victoria, a master's degree in international affairs from Carleton University, and a bachelor's degree in political science and international relations from the University of British Columbia. After completing law school, Raji clerked for Justice Frank Iacobucci at the Supreme Court of Canada. She was called to the Ontario Bar in 2004, to the New York State Bar in 2005, and to the BC Bar in 2011. She has practiced administrative and constitutional law since returning to the West Coast in 2012. Thank you very much for joining us today, Raji. Fiona is a graduate from UVic Law, and I am in my final year at UVic, so it's great to meet a graduate of UVic. Yay, UVic Law! Today's episode will cover uh, two topics, your experience with administrative and constitutional law and your experiences and advice on being a racialized legal professional, particularly as a woman. Sure. Um, Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm really excited to be here. And we're really excited to have you on here. Um, awesome. So our first icebreaker question to start off today is, so I noticed in your promotional video that you have an orange cat called Clementine, and I also have an orange cat called Mango, Aww. and also a cat called Yo-Yo, but I'll bring him over right now. Aww, Mango, that is Mango. such a cute I'm gonna, name. <gasps> oh my gosh. I hear the background noise earlier, but he was fighting with Yo-Yo in my room, Aww. so I'm going to banish both of them from my room after oh my god mango is so cute I, I don't know where clementine is right now we have two cats as well um clementine and then another a boy cat named avery oh so for our listeners i know you aren't able to visualize right now <laughs> Joni is holding up her cat mango <laughs> oh man such a cute cat I think the cats are our pets in general are like really happy about um quarantine because like now we like never leave and they've gotten so needy that if we even leave for like a little bit to like go do something like go get groceries or like some exciting task like that um they're like it's like they're just like where'd you go where'd you go you're not supposed to ever leave I don't know it's I thought at first they would just get sick of us being here all the time but they like actually love it and Clementine who's like a bit of a feisty kitty like has actually turned into a lap cat during this like time of COVID like she never used to come and sit on your lap like she would never sit still anywhere and like now she will come and sit on your lap and like purr 
Aww. for a while. I mean, she then turns on you and like scratches you and leaves, but like at <laughs> least she comes to sit on you for now, which never happened before. So silver lining, I guess, of COVID. And it, it, it seems like a lot of people also um, got pets during the pandemic too, because mm-hmm. now that you have so much time at home and like everyone's in isolation. So yeah, like the best time to get a pet because then you have some company, right? And I think I think for a lot of people, COVID really catalyzed this. Like I think people were on the fence about getting a pet, and like this kind of just affirmed that yes, like it's time to get one because it's twenty twenty. <laughs> totally, and I think like I mean, I it's I think it would be really hard to like be living alone too, and especially like if you're you're you know like right now the like idea of your household is it's really just sort of like who you live with um and that's you know I think hard if you're living alone and so at least a pet is has is like some company and some someone there to like yeah be with. okay well those were some really cool icebreaker questions. good good ice breaking the ice <laughs> is broken <laughs> yeah no I'm glad we were able to learn more about you and your life outside of law but now we're gonna dive into our very first topic which is on sure. being racialized in the legal profession so I'll start off with the first question as a racialized woman in the legal profession, how do you make your voice heard? And what are the strategies that you employ to feel empowered? I mean, I think like many people um, who are racialized and, and um, you know, not cis men, uh, there's, you. it's sort of like you're kind of walking the world with like a different experience. Um, and it's sometimes hard to like know what aspects of your experience are going to matter to someone in a particular moment? Like, you know, is a potentially a client or a colleague going to see you differently because of some aspect of your identity that, you know, you just, that's just who you are. Um, But yet somebody may have, you know, some, some built up assumptions about what that means or, you know, what, what your experience might be based on sort of their their own ideas um so for me like it's it's been interesting because i don't think i i was never somebody who always wanted to go to law school and i wasn't even somebody whose parents like necessarily encouraged her to go to law school which is like kind of a trope right with like asian Canadian (laughs) families it's like your parents have this idea that you're going to be like a doctor or an engineer or like you know, maybe a lawyer if you're like not good with numbers. Um, And and so, but for my parents, like no one in my family had gone to law school. No one was a lawyer that I knew of. I mean, there may have been some distant relatives in India who were, but like not anyone here. And my parents also didn't have like the greatest um, impression of the legal profession because in India, it's not it's not, it's, it can be a pretty corrupt profession. Um, and I think like for them, it was also like a profession where you needed to have a lot of connections. And so it didn't feel like a merit-based profession as much as like, say, you know, being a doctor or like going to become an engineer or a teacher or something. Um, so I think my parents kind of felt like a little bit like they didn't have any connections to offer me. And so it was like, oh, you're going to have to kind of, you know, do that on get kind of get those aspects of like 
than getting to know people and having those connections like on your own because we don't really have anybody to connect you with um and it's kind of interesting because I hadn't really thought about that until I like started going to law school and then saw that you know there were like even at UVic like a lot of you know those kind of wine and cheese type events and like I remember having OCIs um, on campus interviews and like just getting like trying to navigate questions that were like really disconnected from kind of like the kinds of things my family did or the kinds of vacations we went on and you know like I didn't grow up skiing and I remember having one OCI interview where the guy was just talking about skiing for like so long and I was like oh man I'm not gonna get a job at this firm because I literally don't like I don't know how to ski and that seems to be like a really important thing um, and I think like in my experience I haven't had as many kind of really overt experiences where someone's kind of my race has been like a barrier but not in an explicit way but there's all these subtle ways in which there's sort of a culture around law and law is I think a little bit like a foreign culture like when you come out of law school you're like sort of prepared but like sort of mostly not and <laughs> I think for me um, I've tried to kind of stay really as true to kind of what matters to me as much as I possibly can no matter what sort of space I'm in and that's not always easy it's it's easy for me to say like be true to yourself uh, but that's not always easy to do and I definitely have moments where I don't feel like I necessarily have lived up to what I would consider my personal ethics around like being a good um, being a good colleague and supporting people who are having um, who are you know maybe being chewed out by somebody for not any good reason at all and or being kind of like you know maybe being given like really crappy work when they, they there was no reason why they wouldn't be getting other kinds of work so I've definitely had moments where I haven't felt like I've lived up to kind of my own personal sort of ethical standard of the kind of person I want to be but I feel like anytime I've had I've had different jobs in the legal profession and worked in lots of different places tried to kind of go in with um, a sense of like what what I, what would make me feel good about it at the end of the day like and and just kind of honestly sort of taking it in like like bite-sized pieces it's not always like I think sometimes it gets overwhelming if you sort of think about the whole trajectory of something, but if you can feel as though you're able to kind of hold your own um, in, in that space at that time and then reflect back on the day or the week and think, yeah, that was, that was a good day or that was a good week or like, here's what I learned. So I think for me, um, I, I think that's kind of been sort of my guiding principle is to try to come out of each day with feeling as good about what happened as I possibly can and to learn from where maybe things didn't go as well as I wanted them to. Um, but I have been very fortunate in that um, I haven't seen, I haven't at least felt as though um, people have held me back because I'm racialized or I'm a woman or I'm a racialized woman, but I definitely have had to build a thick skin that I didn't necessarily have before I started practicing law. 
Um, and I think I've also had to like learn a little bit more about myself and the kind of person I want to be to like be able to hold my own in that space. And so it's been like kind of more of a reflective journey than maybe um, like one where there's been a lot of external influences or factors. I like what you said about like the need to reflect back. And I also find personally when I go to a lot of webinars led by other Asian females in the legal profession, they always talk about how like, you know, as Asian women, you should break the stereotype of being timid and just, you know, being more passive. And Mm -hmm. the central message that I guess is that I always get is that like, you should always don't be afraid to take up space. And I think that is, that is also another strategy that you could use to like, in order to feel empowered with your voice. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think some of the things that um, have helped me is, is just that I'm a bit of I'm a bit more extroverted uh, so that's definitely helped I'm also very um, happy to laugh at myself like I kind of want to go into the go into an experience looking for the joy in it that's not always possible it's not always easy um, and it's not necessarily like a winning strategy for every moment like I don't know how many winning strategies there really are if someone is you know dead set against you getting an experience that's really exciting and challenging just because you look a certain way or because you don't look a certain way. I don't want to be naive and kind of be really Pollyanna-ish and like just look for the best and like hope for the best. I'm Because I know that there are really deep experiences of discrimination um, where people are, you know, not recognized for who they are and what they offer but are limited by, or perceived by, by someone else's perceived um, ideas and stereotypes and just their own baggage, I guess. Um, so it's, it's not, you know, I think, I think that's true though, that taking up space and, and like being kind of knowing that you belong. And it took me a long time to figure out that I belonged in the law didn't know that I belonged and I didn't know that I even wanted to belong for a long time. Um, and now it's really hard to think of doing anything else, which is also a weird feeling. Um, but yeah, I think that that advice of um, taking space or, or, or just being able to own the space you take um, is really good advice. And it's something that I think is, you know, can show up in small ways, doesn't have to be you know, it doesn't mean you have to change your personality or like, you know, radically start doing things that don't feel like comfortable or natural to you. But I think it is just kind of, yeah, holding that, holding that knowledge that you deserve to be there just as much as anybody else. And you've worked just as hard, if not harder sometimes, um, because maybe you didn't have those connections and your family wasn't able to, you know, provide you with like, access to lawyers or judges who could tell you about what it would be like. And maybe you went into law school having like really no clue, like I did, um, what even lawyers do. And still leaving <laughs> law school kind of not always entirely sure about what lawyers do. Yeah. But, yeah. No, I echo that. Like I think back and I don't think I have actually really spoken to many lawyers before I even entered into law school. So pretty much went into this not really knowing what the what the profession really entails. I remember um, sort of a funny, a funny anecdote. It's a little bit at my dad's expense, but like, 
because a job for clerkships, it's called a, you're called a clerk, which doesn't sound like a very fancy job. And so my dad was kind of like, are you sure you want to do this? Like, like, you're going to be a clerk. Like, this isn't <laughs> like, you, you know, you've been to like law school and now you're graduating from law school and your job is that you're going to be a clerk. Like he, he, you know, it was pretty, it was pretty funny because, you know, he didn't, he d didn't kind of like get it, get like what a great like privilege that would be. Um, and it's only actually when he was talking to his, like the lawyer that was writing his will and he, that this guy knew that I was in law school. Um, and I grew up in Grand Prairie, Alberta. Um, so this was just, a, you know, like a, a lawyer in Grand Prairie who did sort of like a gen, has a general practice. And my parents got their will done from that guy. And so then he was asking my dad and my dad's like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. She has, she had a job in a firm in Toronto in the summer, but she's not going back there. She's going to go work for some judge in Ottawa. And, um, <laughs> you know, she's going to be a clerk. And the guy was like, oh, that's really great. That's like such an awesome opportunity. And it sort of like then twigged for my dad that like, being a clerk was not like some menial, <laughs> terrible thing, but I can understand. It doesn't sound like anything fancy, <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was quite funny. And it was like, yeah, I didn't even know that was a job. Like I didn't even think about what, who worked with judges or what, what a court, what you need to make a courtroom function, like a registry and all those things. They were just like, not things I'd ever really thought about. Mm -hmm. And like for our listeners who may not be familiar with what a clerkship is, please correct me if I'm wrong, but um, yeah, clerkships are basically opportunities where students um, are able to work for one judge mainly and you do topics of research um, depending on what type of questions that the judge might want answered. And these are highly competitive positions. I remember when people apply for them and have interviews, they're always suited up and walking around school <laughs> and everyone already knows that you're interviewing for clerkship positions. But yeah, they're, um, they're once in a lifetime opportunities, especially if, uh, the higher level of the court, um, the more the more competitive it is. And I know that uh, Raji, you clerked at the Supreme Court of Canada, which is the highest level of court um, in our country. And so that actually segues very nicely into one of our other questions uh, on your expertise. And we were wondering, like, what was your experience like clerking at the Supreme Court of Canada for Justice Jacobucci? And how do you think that has helped you in your work today? Um, well, first of all, I'll say if anyone listening is thinking about applying to a clerkship or feeling some sense of doubt about whether they should apply, um, my advice is always to go for it. Um, I think clerking at any level of court is like such an, such a fascinating opportunity. It's such a cool um, job to kind of get to sort of see how the decision makers do their deliberation and to like be a part of that and the other thing that's really cool about clerking is the other clerks like you get to kind of you're clerking with you know a group of other people at least when I was clerking at the Supreme Court there were three clerks per judge and nine judges so that's like a, a like you kind of got this group of 27 people who are all sort of geeking out about the law um, in a similar way to you. Um, and so for me, it was like an incredible opportunity. And I think it would probably, I don't know that I would necessarily feel as um, comfortable, you know, 
or have stuck with the law maybe as long as I have if I didn't have that opportunity because I had a, a wonderful judge to work with who was um, who is uh, but as a judge was just such a lovely person to work with and um, he just I, I learned so much from him he was somebody who in his like in the way that he approached legal issues um, would always kind of look for kind of what's what's the common ground um, and try to find those pathways and that's something that's definitely been kind of um, a strategy I guess I've used in my life too even though litigation is often adversarial um, mm -hmm. I I think I still really look for what are the things that draw draw us together like where are where are the commonalities as opposed to the differences in our positions and like is that a starting point to sort of work towards something that could be an improvement for everyone um so so I would say that that his his influence on my career has been really significant um and I'm and and not just him but the other clerks like I'm still in touch with uh, most of them and and I still learn so much from them and it's really it's just an interesting opportunity and I think like you know I felt that I know that um uh at the event on Friday there's going to be a panel on imposter syndrome and I definitely felt like an imposter like I did not feel like I was like there must have been some mistake I don't even know um I didn't think to apply for that clerkship on my own, one of the professors at UVic was like, hey, you should maybe think about applying for a clerkship. And I was like, eh, I don't really know what that is. Um, spurred me on. So uh, I would, I just want to do that same spurring on to anyone who's thinking about it because it's, it is quite a remarkable opportunity. And, and as you said, it doesn't, it doesn't, you doesn't come around all the time. And so um, and they're not just looking for people who have like all A's like the, you know, there's a lot more to judging than just what your grades on your transcript say. And I think the judges really appreciate having people with like a wide variety of experience. And so, I mean, yeah, it was a really remarkable thing. And I think it's really influenced the way I approach my work. Thank you so much for sharing about that. And I think that also segues nicely into one of our other questions, which is about the composition of the federal court currently. So mm -hmm. 44 judges currently on the federal court, only two identify as either indigenous or a person of color. And mm -hmm. many BIPOC lawyers find this troubling given that 63% of the federal court's docket deals with issues such as immigration, refugee, and indigenous. Um, related cases, um, mm -hmm. areas in which almost all applicants are BIPOC. Mm -hmm. And in early September, an open letter from 36 law organizations called on David Lametti to fill the current vacancies with uh, uh, BIPOC candidates. So what are your thoughts on the lack of diversity in the judiciary and what are ways that you would suggest for reforms happen on the bench? Yeah, um, I've thought about this a lot um, because I don't know if if you know, but I'm on the Judicial Advisory Committee for BC. So I'm one of the committee members I, with, you know, I think there's um, seven of us total. So six other um, really great people who are also on this committee. And what we do with this is part of the new process that the that 
um, the federal uh, minister of justice and attorney general have like developed for um, appointments to the federal bench. So like appointments to the here in BC, like the BC Supreme Court or the BC Court of Appeal um, or to any any of the federal court, like the federal court, federal court of appeal, if it's a lawyer from BC who's applying, all of those applications come to the members of the judicial advisory committee. Um, we we do we review them and we provide like a recommendation back that goes back to Ottawa and then we you know then it kind of the, it moves on in that process from that point on so I've been thinking a lot about um, diversity on the bench and and I was part of a presentation that was offered um, online that was a panel on diversity where Mr. Lametti gave some remarks at the beginning and then we each there was some uh, judges from other jurisdictions and then me as a member of a judicial advisory committee and so I, I mean I absolutely think that you know there's a lack of diversity the federal court in particular it seems to be uh, very very white <laughs> um, more so you know I mean I think all of the courts in across Canada can can use um, increased diversity, but certainly that court, especially given um, the kinds of cases that come before it. Uh, and so in terms of reform, like, I, I think like part of, part of that was joining this committee, putting my name forward for it. I mean, I didn't, I had to be appointed to it. And, and I've been lucky in that I was appointed one time for one term, and then I got reappointed for a second term and I'm on as the representative from the Canadian Bar Association um, and it, I, and it's actually a really remarkable opportunity to do that work it's a lot of work so uh, but but it, but it's really cool and you get to read about these applications from people who are like so inspiring and so talented and you know it, if I ever feel down about our profession which you know on occasion happens <laughs> where you're just kind of like oh man why are lawyers so uh and th and then I like look at these people who are applying for for judicial appointments and they're like incredible people they're like amazing people doing all kinds of cool stuff in community and doing tons of pro bono and just having like really really cool um careers and and lives and so it's kind of a nice thing to do for that reason every so often if i'm feeling down i can be like oh there's so many cool people but going back to your question around diversity i mean i think the one of the challenges for for any of the people on a jack um, and then I think ultimately for the minister um, himself is to make sure that the pool of candidates is actually diverse, right? Like to see that the people putting themselves forward are going to be people that are coming from different practice experiences, different like socioeconomic experiences, different racialized communities, different religious communities. Um, and that's not to say that like those people aren't putting their names forward and that's why they're not getting appointed. It's just to say that um, the process has to account for that, right? Like even right now with the way the process is set up, um, there's still a lot of focus on, um, you know, sort of some of the more traditional indicia of like, success in our profession and that's things like you know like were you on you know did you spend a lot of time like 
volunteering with the CBA or were you a bencher at the Law Society and um, you know how many CLE are you doing and you know there's lots of those kinds of factors I think still play into it and I think part of it is looking at what are the barriers that exist to getting people with those diverse experiences either into those positions if they want to um, or recognizing talent and ability and merit like outside of those traditional areas that we sort of typically see as like kind of like oh the you know the the kind of most talented in our profession are doing these things um, and so it's like really kind of like expanding the aperture so that you can see that there's like a breadth of different ways in which people make impact in their communities and in society at large um, and that there are reasons why some people are not participating in um, some of these sort of so-called you know traditional kind of ladders for recognition in our profession and I like to think that like for me having me appointed to the Jack has you know has been beneficial in the sense from a perspective of diversity not only because I am a racialized woman but also because like I've had different practice experience and so I think you know if somebody's entire practice has been you know, working in a in a large corporate law firm, um, that's that's a particular kind of ethos, right? Like there's a particular kind of environment that you're in, um, and that I think maybe lends itself to to like having one or very very limited lenses maybe on like what's an experience of a self-represented person who's navigating the court these days and there's so many more people who are having to self-represent because we have this huge crisis um, in access to justice and so I, I think that the question of diversity is sort of it's not insurmountable it's it's a challenge that has to be met um, and I think there it ha and I think various strategies have to be employed and like I'm not able to like because I'm on the jack I can't like basically coerce people to putting in applications <laughs> because I might be reviewing them so I I've had to like you know in my own stealthy ways just kind of support people um, and again sort of you know hold that space like you deserve that consideration as much as anyone else you've worked hard um, you have talent you have um, so much to give and the profession has so much to learn um, from you and so I try to I try to bring that kind of ethic into like all of the the work that I do and in especially with the Jack it's it's been a slog like you, you know the process doesn't end with us it goes back to Ottawa and there's a lot of other factors I'm sure some of which I can guess at some of which I have no idea about um, Mm -hmm. But it is something I think that is part of like legitimacy in these institutions like people, you know, will not see the institutions that we have as legitimate and we just need to look down south to see what happens when that happens. Um, and if people sort of stop believing in the rule of law, if people don't think these institutions are meant to reflect their experience or are actively excluding them that is going to have such 
huge impacts that are that go beyond any one particular community our feelings um, or desires for inclusion it's going to actually shake i think the foundations of those institutions and so you know i think that it's time to really pay attention it's been it's long been time to pay attention but especially now and looking at diversity in our profession how many people stay in our profession um, who are racialized who have different gender identities um, what experience do they have of being supported in our profession i think these things all add to whether we'll see more diverse representation on the federal court bench or any court Bench. Thank you so much for sharing all of that, Raji. You touched on a lot of points that I fully am on board with. Um, and I, I know that in particular, you had mentioned a little bit about access to justice, uh, especially now that we're seeing a rise in uh, self-represented litigants in our courthouses. Now, I know access to justice is actually one of your areas of expertise. So that is one of our questions for you today. Um, in terms of like access to justice, can you tell us a little bit about your work on that, um, the impact of detention on women, or even in the realm of family law? We were just wondering, like, um, what are your thoughts on that? And uh, just to learn more about what your work entails. So, I mean, the access to justice work that I'm doing now, I think, kind of most directly connects with legal aid for family law. Um, that's a big project that West Coast Leaf has been working on for many, many years, like basically since I was in law school. Um, when I was at UVic, uh, I was there from 2000 to 2003. And in 2002, we had a change of government at the provincial level. Um, and there were some really big changes that were made to the way that legal aid is delivered in BC. Um, and, you know, without going into the whole sordid history of it, basically a lot of funding, the, the whole mechanism for like legal aid entitlements was removed from legislation and built into this kind of, um, this other kind of strategy, which involves using, um, an, um, there's a memorandum of understanding that's entered into with the between Legal Aid BC and the province, and then there's a budget that has to be approved, and then Legal Aid BC can develop policies subsequent to that budget that does not allow them to have any kind of deficit. And so the end result of this was that a, there was huge cuts in po like poverty law services were reduced completely, and family law services were reduced by I believe about 40% over a period of time, um, but in that early 2000s timeframe. And so West Coast Leaf um, had been working on kind of lobbying against these the erosion to these entitlements and did a ton of research and um, letter writing and lobbying activities and out of court advocacy to sort of see that there's actually there's you don't really save anything when you cut programs like that because the cost of the program is so much more than just what legal aid BC pays a lawyer for a family law retainer um, but all of that out of court advocacy I think was um, not really getting the results that West Coast Leaf was interested in and so um, I started working there in 2016 and a year later we ended up filing um, a challenge to the way that um, family law legal aid is administered in BC as well as sort of the legislative scheme that kind of supports what legal aid is available and so that's kind of my most direct access to justice work right now because we're litigating that case at the moment it's um it's called single mothers alliance 
uh, and Bell v. BC and LSS, which is Legal Services Society, which changed its name to Legal Aid BC um, recently. But so that's kind of been like the, the main point. And that's sort of thinking about access to justice in like kind of the traditional sense of like, like access to a, a lawyer and access to a court process. I mean, thinking about access to justice kind of, I think has to go beyond access to a lawyer and access to a court process because there's for sure substantive elements of access to justice that don't necessarily mean that anyone who does have a lawyer um, and does have a process that they're able to exercise in court necessarily feel like they're getting justice. Um, and so I think part of that is like strategies to maybe revision what um, what our justice system is and who it's intended to serve. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, we uh, kind of get wrapped up in what we do as lawyers um, and we, we know that system and we're, we're able to access it. Um, and I think sometimes when we think about access to justice, we kind of get hung up on that, like, it's about getting a lawyer for somebody so they can go to court. That's access to justice. That's definitely a dimension of it. And I don't mean to kind of undercut how important that is, especially in so many cases where there's a huge power differential. And so you're asking somebody like someone who's been abused in a relationship to self-represent against their abuser, who is likely to be someone with a greater um, opportunity to afford counsel. And so, you know, that that's a, a, a bit of the kind of the heart of what our case gets at is that we're actually doing a huge disservice to people in that situation because we've set up a system that's supposed to help them and that they can't actually access in any sort of effective or meaningful way. But of course, that's, that's only one aspect of access to justice and there's so many other elements of it. Um, but, uh, but my kind of most direct work, I would say, has been with this case. Um, and we've been working with a really cool group of pro bono lawyers. Uh, and, and yeah, it's just been really great. And I think part of what's been really great about working on that case is also that we're, allowed, we're able to kind of run the case the way we want to. And it's new for West Coast Sleep. Usually we intervene in cases that somebody else has brought. So this is kind of our first um, case that we've developed that we're pushing out. Um, yeah, it's a lot of work, but it's also really rewarding and exciting. And I especially get to work with really cool lawyers. Um, so we're heading to trial in September of 2021, all things being equal, knock <laughs> yeah. on wood. Um, yeah, that's the plan. Uh, and, and in terms of other aspects of my work that in some way, everything that I do at West Coast Leaf touches on access to justice, like in a, in, if I think about it in a really broad way, um, because we've been involved in cases that have to do with like public interest standing, which is you know, about who can actually bring claims um, on whose behalf. And that's been kind of an interesting dimension because it allows for organizations like West Coast Leaf to advance claims um, where, you know, the alternative would be a whole bunch of people trying to bring their own claim. And I guess an example in the detention context is the solitary confinement challenge, the constitutional challenge to solitary confinement that was brought by the BC Civil Liberties Association mm -hmm. and the John Howard Society. Um, you know, they're in, at the end of that was sort of this consideration 
um, by the Court of Appeal here that, you know, maybe we, we think that, um, you know, the alternative that was posed by the, the federal government was that, like, prisoners in solitary confinement should bring their own challenges. And you're sort of like, in the moment, like, okay, but we're talking about prisoners in solitary confinement. And there's all of this evidence about how difficult it is for prisoners in solitary confinement to get access to anything, mm-hmm. um, let alone be able to have the resources to either find a lawyer who's willing to do this pro bono or try to argue it themselves and amass this huge record that you need in these cases. Um, And so this idea that, you know, BCCLA and John Howard Society um, shouldn't be able to get a remedy under Section 24.1 of the Charter because they're not a person. and therefore, there is an alternative, and the alternative is for all of these people in solitary confinement to be bringing challenges, constitutional challenges, to their placement in solitary confinement and their continued placement in solitary confinement. I mean, I think like it's it's sort of interesting that there's, despite having a charter for so long, um, I mean, it's, I guess it's not really that long, but long enough, you'd think, there's still questions that are unanswered. Um, and many of them do touch on what access to justice means, what who we think our legal system is designed for. Is it designed for an end user that's a member of the public? Um, doesn't really seem like it is. <laughs> um, is it designed for our profession? Um, because it's, it's so... Um, specialized and has so many technical requirements and so many ways that you can you can fail <laughs> in in bringing your case forward and if you've ever spent any time at like a court registry and seen people like individual people who are self-representing trying to navigate what they need to file and how many copies they need and what form it needs to be like you really start to to see this isn't a system that this is not a a public service system. (laughs) It's not a system built for public use. Um, So yeah, but I I would say access to justice is probably shown shows up in almost everything I do in some way, shape or form because it is such a huge concept. But I think that we're getting more sophisticated in how we think about what access can mean, that there's different levels of access, Um, that different people's access needs are going to be met differently, that Mm -hmm. we can't take like a one-size-fits-all approach and say, well, if we just put everything online, that's access to justice. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that doesn't appreciate that there are like huge digital divides in our society. There's lots of people for whom English is not their first language. There Mm -hmm. are people who live in remote rural communities. Um, There are people whose experiences are not going to make that um, like an equitable access um, scenario. And so how do we think about those people while we're trying to develop sort of innovative ways to make justice cheaper to access? You know, it is through these like great interactions with lawyers like you um, and also like organizations like Faculty BC um, mm-hmm. that, you know, that make me want to power through and keep going. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Faculty is a, is a wonderful community. I'm so impressed by... Um, 
what has been built through faculty, like the, the, the networks, the community, the support. It's amazing. I went to the gala last year and it was just such a warm and rich environment. And it was lovely to see all of these people who are, you know, really coming like they're in all different practice areas, right? Like people from all different practice areas. Um, but like there's this this real bond and connection. And I think that's like that's the thing that my dad was saying. We don't I don't have the connections to give you. It's like you're building them yourselves now. Like you don't need somebody else's connections. You've got your own connections that you're building. And that's what I think will ultimately, I hope, um, transform this profession and to not being the sort of, you know, old boys club of, of yesterday into something that's like, really is very reflective of the world we live in and is shaped by people like yourselves mm -hmm. and everyone else who's part of FACL. Um, yeah, it's really great. And I know that this year's gala is going to be different, but different doesn't mean worse. It can, <laughs> it'll be fun. And I hope people will really come out. Um, because the, the the program looks amazing. Yeah. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on it. <laughs> you do make up a really big part of it. So the episode today is being recorded prior to our conference, but uh, by the time it is released, the conference will have already concluded. Mm. Um, so yeah, the topic is enacting change, your seat at the table. And um, we are very excited to have uh, Raji be our closing keynote speaker. And we hope you were able to attend, but if you were not able to join us virtually this year, we hope you at least enjoyed today's episode and that you are able to take away a number of things we discussed with Raji. Thank you for tuning into the Fackwell BC podcast. Visit our website at fackwellbc.ca and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at FackwellBC. We hope you enjoyed our episode today and stay tuned for the next guest. If you have guest speaker suggestions, please email us at membership at fackwellbc.ca.